Okay, we are live on Zoom, and we are live here for a discussion with independent media journalists, Manara Muhawesh Adli of Mint Press News, Rania Khalik of Unauthorized Disclosure, and Anya Parampil of The Gray Zone, and we are going to be speaking about the topic of corporate media silencing what is really happening in Palestine. And this webinar, of course, was organized by author and activist Miko Pellet. Uh, my name is Jamil, and I'll be introducing today's event and facilitating the Q&A portion after the panel's discussion wraps up. Um, again, thanks so much to our panel. These are some of the sharpest, most accomplished, and most uncompromising journalists that are working today. And um, we will be sure to uh, shout out all of the uh, panel's um, uh, social media and the outlets that they work for so that you can get connected with their work. Um, we also want to mention that um, Rania will have to take off in about 45 minutes or so um, in the discussion due to a, a scheduling thing. So um, it's going to prompt me to make this a very quick intro so that we can maximize our panel's speaking time. Um, I want to thank all of you for joining us for this live uh, discussion. We are live streaming this to Miko's Facebook page. So if you want to share it with folks who didn't register ahead of time, you can let them know to head over to facebook.com slash Miko Pellet official, and they will be able to watch the live stream from there. We also make each of these webinars available um, in an archive on MikoPellet.com as well. So look for that in a few days. So to today's discussion, we'll attempt to answer the question, why is the mainstream media silent on Palestine? So we also want to contextualize independent media's battle against Hasbarah in the digital landscape. We want to um, try and analyze maybe if the scales are beginning to tip in Palestine's favor in this war on information. And we also hope to gain some insights into what working for each of these uh, respected media outlets is like as it pertains to reporting on Palestine. So uh, stay tuned after this discussion. Um, that, at that point, we'll begin the audience Q&A. If you want to ask a question and participate, hit that Q&A button in your Zoom toolbar at the bottom of the screen. You can submit your question at any point during the event, and we will try our best to get through as many as we can. And I'm going to pass things over to Miko Pelled to get this conversation started. Thank you, Jamil. And thank you, Michael, behind the scenes there. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, Nar, Anya, and Rania, thank you. Like Jamil said, you are uh, cutting edge, uh, on the cutting edge of journalism. Uh, you report on important issues that nobody else does. Um, I've known you personally, you know, for, for a long time, and I have a great deal of respect uh, for the work that you do and for the people that you are. Um, so... Israel receives $3.8 billion a year, and this is as a result of uh, the latest foreign aid agreement that was signed under the Obama administration. $3.8 billion a year, and we hear practically nothing about what is happening, uh, what Israel does, uh, what happens in Palestine, um, and, and this, is, this is something that I know is troubling a lot of people. Just a, a few short examples of things that have happened just over the last few weeks and not a single word 
was uh, mentioned in, in the corporate media and the regular media. There was a women's march, a mother's march uh, that marched uh, halfway down from Haifa to Jerusalem, which is halfway down the country. These were mothers who lost their children to uh, violence. These are Palestinian mothers. And uh, there's a great deal of violence that is perpetuated by the state of Israel in the communities of Palestinian citizens of Israel. You can purchase a gun on the street for a hundred bucks, drugs and so forth. Um, and they marched, you know, over a hundred mothers marched throughout, uh, like I said, halfway, halfway the length of the country. There were some Palestinian members of uh, the Knesset that joined them. There was nothing, nothing was reported. Actually, nothing was reported even in the Israeli media uh, about this. Um, their killing of Palestinian Bedouin in the Nakab. Again, these are Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. Displacement, dispossession of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel. We hear nothing about that. Um, there are two weeks of almost consistent and constant bombing of the Gaza Strip. Um, I did a, uh, an interview for my podcast with uh, journalist uh, Wafal Al-Odaini from, from Gaza. There's been nothing, you know, I mean, I listened to, to of course, the, the corporate media, but also the uh, things like Democracy Now!, um, nothing about this, or hardly anything. Thousands of Israelis, which exclude Palestinians actually, but thousands of Israelis have been protesting for months now, every week, in front of the Prime Minister's residence, demanding the Netanyahu, <coughs> excuse me, demanding the Netanyahu resign. Nothing, silent. Um, and again, $3.8 billion going there, and we hear very little reporting on what is actually taking place. Um, so I was going to ask each and every one of you to just give us your thoughts on this, uh, on this problem, on this serious and perhaps criminal lack of reporting uh, on this issue from, uh, by the media. So uh, Manar, would you start? What are your thoughts? Did you say Manar? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we don't have even a mainstream media anymore. We have an extremist corporate media that's continuously representing the interests of the military class. And that includes uh, the state of Israel, which is one of the largest receivers of uh, aid and weaponry from the United States. And so with that, the media works as a lapdog for this industry rather than a watchdog, which is why independent media is so crucial um, in today's history, where uh, Israel, which is an apartheid state, a colonizer, a major human rights abuser, is presented in a way within the media as a beacon of freedom and democracy and morals and values and so forth when it's engaging in ethnic cleansing and uh, expansion of its apartheid state. And so, uh, you know, we can't really expect our media anymore to truly represent the interests of uh, people and human rights and to truly uphold our First Amendment and keeping we the people educated um, on where our, you know, taxpayer, you know, funded money goes, which is going towards the state of Israel. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, uses... Uh, millennial-led uh, organizations, not millennial-led, but millennial organizations like BuzzFeed and Vice News to act as the official mouthpiece for uh, their policies in the United States. And it was announced, I believe, just a, uh, maybe four or five years ago that um, BuzzFeed <clears throat> is the official mouthpiece of the Israeli Defense Forces. And that's because 
um, this rise of like so-called hipster propaganda media outlets like Vice News and, and BuzzFeed, uh, their main audience are these young millennials under the age of 30. And so they know that they can influence them. And so where do they go? They target these major news organizations and uh, to ensure that young people are okay with apartheid. Apartheid is cool. The Israeli Defense Forces is cool and hip. And that's why we see all of these ads um, and these videos coming out of like, you know, um, and, re and news reports coming out of these um, media organizations that calls Israel, you know, the place to visit, you know, look at the beaches, you know, look at the women, how free they are. And look, you know, we celebrate great gay pride, for example, but it's all whitewashing <laughs> the massive human rights abuses that Israel is committing against Palestinians on a daily basis. Um, and then, you know, thanks to independent media, I mean, you talked about like democracy now, uh, democracy now has taken a, a major turn in recent years and, and other so-called independent media organizations that have now become establishment like Mother Jones or The Nation, you know, and while they do report on Palestine in some form, um, you know, they're, they're not doing it on a regular basis like the gray zone or like mid press or like the soapbox with Ronnie Colick. So we have to turn to independent media. We're very lucky to work with people like you, Miko, you know, you're a regular weekly contributor to mid press. Um, we have worked with Joe Catrone, who's based in Gaza, who has been based in Gaza. Um, and other people like uh, Kathy Shahada, she has, she's a regular contributor. Um, to if Americans do and to mid press and so we're working we're trying to to not just report on these daily happenings of what's going on in Palestine because we know the situation is so dire it's a crisis what people are facing in Gaza when they're being bombed two weeks in a row and we have uh, you know we don't even get the voices of Palestinians or the Palestinian children that are that are dying under these bombs uh, we don't even get the voices of the doctors that are at these hospitals that are overwhelmed with blood and, um, you know, just the tragedy of this bloodshed. We're getting the voices of like Israeli generals talking about how they're targeting Hamas. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, what they're, that's what they're talking about. They paint Palestinians as militant. And this all goes back to this overall, you know, uh, justification for militarism abroad, Islamophobia, uh, anti-Arab coverage. This is all goes in that trend uh, to fulfill this U.S. military industrial complex fantasy to um, to expand bloodshed and justify it around the world. Wow. Yeah. Um, good opening. Thank you. <laughs> Rania, you just came back from uh, Lebanon, um, which you very, very, very close to Palestine. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue, just generally? Well, so I, I agree with everything Manar said, but I would add a few things to that because I think it's more than just that. And I would add that, um, you know, when it comes to the U.S. media, we all know a lot of the reasons that they behave the way they do in the coverage of Israel-Palestine, as Manar laid out. But I think actually there has definitely been a shift that we should acknowledge in the past five or so years. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think the election of Donald Trump attached the issue of Israel uh, to Donald Trump and the media in the U.S. doesn't like Donald Trump. And so there has been more of a pushback, not to you know, the degree that we would agree with, but there has been more of a pushback against Israeli policy in corporate media because Netanyahu and Trump are so close. Um, that said, uh, I do think that one of the reasons that the biased 
in the U.S. media and Western press st still exists so strongly is also because, and maybe I'm saying this because I live in the Middle East, but Arab media is extremely biased because a lot of the big Arab media outlets are outlets like coming out of Saudi Arabia and funded by Saudi Arabia or funded by the UAE. And as we know, the UAE and Israel just normalized relations. So there's a bias problem, not only in Western media coverage, but even Arab media coverage and the way that Palestine and Israel are covered, especially when you talk about uh, countries that are normalizing relations with Israel. The, the, the coverage is not that different in terms of its bias against Palestinians from what you see in the Western press. And I think that's a new development in the last 10 years or so that's really, really problematic because the media that, that Middle Easterners consume across the region affects how they perceive that issue. And so I'm not saying people across the region are becoming pro-Israel, but over time there is increasingly less sympathy uh, for the Palestinian cause and less unity around the Palestinian cause. That's really, really troubling. Um, and, you know, I also think that this speaks to the rest of the region and what the U.S. has done to the region. If you look at country by country in the Middle East, you can almost, like, see on a map which countries are punished and which are friends of, like, which, which have, you know, booming economies based on whether they've normalized relations with Israel. Um, some of the countries that are still aligned with the Palestinian cause, I'm talking about Syria, I'm talking about Iran, have been completely choked and strangled by U.S. wars and sanctions over these years. Uh, and these countries, while there is more sympathy in the U.S. press for Palestine, there really is. And I mean, I know some of the journalists who've become more sympathetic to that cause in the mainstream press. What they have is an extreme hatred for the countries on the U.S. State Department's hit list that happen to also be united with Palestine. And those are the countries, like I said, that are being strangled right now. And so when we talk about the issue of Palestine and how there's a bias towards it in the U.S. press, we also need to include the rest of the region. And I think this gets left out a lot in the way we talk about this issue because we see everything as being segmented and you know, isolated from one another. But the anti-Iran coverage, the anti-Syria coverage, the hatred for Hezbollah and always calling it a terrorist organization, these issues and these biases in the US press are 100% attached to the pro-Israel, anti-Palestine bias that we see. Um, and I think that's an issue that we should be uh, really analyzing more when we talk about this. Yeah, absolutely, brilliant. Uh, I think adding, I, th I think see, uh, clearly seeing this as a, as as a regional issue, I think is important. And, and and as you point out, Syria, Iran, Hezbollah, you know, there's this axis of kind of a, the Middle East axis of evil, which which uh, includes, of course, the Palestinians. Um, and it's fascinating to hear about the Arab media. That's 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 a very valuable insight. Um, Anya, you've been to Gaza. We've spoken about this issue uh, before. What's your take on this in general terms? I just want to start first by thanking Miko, Jamil, and Michael for putting this together, and also for all the viewers at home who decided to spend their Wednesday afternoon with us, or wherever you are in the world. I saw someone from Gaza, so happy evening, good night, <laughs> nice to see you. But I agree with everything that Rania and Minar have said so far, particularly about how the structure of our corporate establishment media, we know really that it only exists to further the interests of the military or corporate imperial class. Israel is an extension of that project in the Middle East. And 
also with what Ronnie has said that it's very important to discuss Palestine as part of a re the region. And I think we can get more into that later if we discuss the ways in which some of these regional conflicts have actually hurt the Palestine solidarity movement on the grassroots level in the United States and the UK. But when it comes to mainstream corporate establishment media coverage of Palestine. I also agree with Rania that there has been a major shift in the last few years, which I, I, I don't think can be overlooked because I never thought, for example, that I'd see the day that someone such as Peter, Peter Beinart would pen an op-ed in the New York Times calling for one state. This is something that people such as yourself, Miko, or our friend and, and colleague Ali Abunima of the Electronic Intifada have been talking about for years, but now it's made its way to the highest levels of the establishment, the paper of, the, of record really for, for the establishment. And I think part of that has to do with the election of President Trump. He really exposed the special relationship between the United States and Israel when making the decision to, example, move the capital or the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, flouting international law. Uh, but the, the other point is that Israel itself as a project is in crisis. You mentioned, Miko, the protests against Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Jerusalem. I also covered those demonstrations, I believe I was there in 2018. And so these demonstrations have been going on for quite a while against a landmark corruption case, which Netanyahu's implicated in, he's facing trial. And Unfortunately, these demonstrations within the liberal Israeli public don't include outrage over the crimes Netanyahu has overseen and committed against Palestinians, but I think it says a lot that in spite of these massive demonstrations, in spite of this massive corruption scandal, and and all of the, the political turmoil Netanyahu has faced, he's still firmly at the helm of the Israeli government because there doesn't seem to be anybody else capable of replacing him that could keep the project together. And I think that suggests that they're afraid within the, within the, the high ranks of, of the Israeli establishment that it, it's, it's facing a real political crisis. I, I don't think, I think some people myself included, even wonder how much longer, if we think 15, 20 years down the line, is this system of apartheid, is the besieged, the, 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 the blockade of the Gaza Strip sustainable? And I, I just don't think that it can really last that long without, of course, the U.S. support. But we're even seeing that consensus within the U.S. political class broken partially as a result of, of, of the election of Trump, but also because I think people who grew up in the 2000s, people who are coming up in media and politics now, they don't really see Israel the same way prior generations did. There's no sham of a peace process that we've witnessed throughout our lifetime. We've just seen Israel bombing Gaza repeatedly every every few years and then now Netanyahu is 
really showing the face of this right wing, really nasty figure that it's now lumped in with other right wing so-called, you, you hear people use the term authoritarian leaders around the world. Netanyahu's considered part of that, that class, that bubble, whether it's such as Viktor Orban in Hungary or Bolsonaro or Bolsonaro in Brazil, Netanyahu's placed in that category. And so he's done a lot of damage, I think, to, to Israel's image. And it's a losing battle among the younger people. I, I ex, you know, experienced this myself on campus, even at, a, at an institution such as GW, which is right across the street from the State Department. There was still a vibrant Palestine solidarity group there working hard to pass divestment and even professors discussing occupation and apartheid. So, there is a crisis of legitimacy Israel is facing, and I think it's only a matter of time before that breaks through. There's still structures involved in the media and, and a system in place that's hard to break, but it, there, there will be moments where, where light can break through, and this just can't continue forever, I don't think. Well, if there are any any breakthroughs, um, as both you and Rania are ta you know mentioned, um, it's largely thanks to the work that you guys are doing. In other words, none, no, nobody in the mainstream media, nobody like Peter Beinart, uh, the New York Times, none of that would have happened had it not filtered up through the work that you guys do and through the uh, the um, the outlets that you that you publish your work with, which you you publish your work. Um, and, um, you know, you all work, you know, constantly and very, very hard to, to, to bring about some crucial issues out in the open, things that uh, are unpopular, controversial, um, issues that as journalists need to be talked about that nobody does and you all tackle them very courageously head on. Um, I want to throw a couple of questions at you. Um, Number one, are we making progress? And perhaps the, the things you just said, uh, Anya, indicate that we are, but are we making progress? Is it, is it something that we can all see? Um, are we doing enough? Is enough being done to bring these important issues like Palestine uh, to the forefront? And are we, are you reaching, are we all reaching people in significant numbers to bring about change? So Anya, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you this time. Um, and just, you know, these three questions again, are we making progress? Are we doing enough? And are we reaching people in significant numbers? So I'm a, I'm a cynic. So when I answer questions, I always answer from a very cynical perspective. <laughs> um, so hopefully Manar and Anya can have a more positive outlook. Now, are we making progress? It depends where. Are we making progress in the U.S.? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that it's amazing that there's members of Congress right now who openly support BDS. That's a really big deal. Um, I think that the issue of Palestine, aside from, you know, watching CNN, uh, a lot of media outlets have a lot more balanced coverage than they did a couple of years ago. It's still not balanced, but it's more. You do see voices like Nora Erekat, you'll see in the New York Times, in the Washington Post. That wasn't the case five years ago. Peter Beinart is now advocating for a one-state solution in the mainstream. That's a really big deal. Uh, across college campuses, this issue is a no-brainer for most people. They're like, Israel's an occupying power. The younger 
uh, American Jewish generation uh, has definitely dramatically shifted on this issue compared to their elders. That's a really big deal. So on that front, um, I do think things are changing in a positive direction. But you also have to look at what's happening on the ground. And again, like I keep bringing this back to the region because Palestine is not isolated. And unfortunately, what I've seen happen in the Palestine Solidarity Movement is they don't see, not everybody, but like it's not an issue of imperialism. They don't view Palestine as an issue of U.S. imperialism, right? Like as an issue of Israel as an extension of U.S. imperialism and Palestine is a part of that. They view it as isolated. It's just about Palestine, Israel, no other countries around it matter. And that's a really big problem because the facts on the mound, ground matter. Just like the facts on the ground of settlements matter in terms of the future of Palestine and Israel, the facts of what's happening around Israel-Palestine matters. What's happening in the Golan Heights, for example, where Israel's trying to like steal it permanently from Syria matters. What's happening with Hezbollah in Lebanon matters. What's happening with Iran matters. The key reason I keep mentioning these countries is because the only reason any sort of Palestinian resistance still exists is because of, because of support from the region, from partners in the region. And those partners include the Iranians. There could be no Palestinian resistance without Syria. Uh, there could be no Palestinian resistance without Hezbollah in Lebanon. And if you look at the views of the most dominant voices in the pro-Palestine movement in the U.S., there are people who either don't care about these other countries or don't know much about them, or unfortunately, they're actually people who advocate against these countries, who advocate for U.S. regime change in Syria, for example, or who advocate for U.S. punishing Hezbollah in Lebanon with sanctions, or who advocate against the Iranians. So I think that this is a really, really big problem because you can support Palestine all you want in your rhetoric. You can support Palestine with a million op-eds in the New York Times, but that's not going to change what's actually happening on the ground. Well, you know, that brings up an important question. I mean, are Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, and so forth being, um, are, they, are they demonized because they are supporting Palestine? Or is there a larger issue here where all of these are being demonized at the same time, regardless of Palestine? I think that's an important, an incredibly important uh, uh, point. And also the division that this has caused among, among, among uh, people who uh, support the Palestinian cause. But I agree with you that seeing it, uh, is seeing it in, that, in that light, I'm more inclusive. And Miko, I just, just want to add one thing. And the reason I bring all this up is because on the ground in Palestine, you've seen Palestinian communities, you know, become like encroached upon more and more and more. And you've seen Palestinians suffer more and more and more. And what U.S. allies in the region are doing, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, like these countries are having a damaging impact on Palestine by normalizing with the country of Israel and making Palestine, you know, not an important issue. Um, and their populations have basically give, been given a choice. The choice is either you get economic prosperity, you know, and we get to be a rich country and the Americans won't destroy us and we'll give them our oil, or, you know, we're going to end up like the Iranians and be sanctioned and destroyed because we go against the Americans. That's yeah. really the option on the ground in the Middle East. And that has had a devastating impact on the state of Palestine. I don't mean as a state. I just mean like the state yeah. of the people living in Palestine. I just but wanted to add that. You're um, absolutely right. And this has been going on. Israel has recognized this axis of evil a long time ago. And that's exactly been the case. The countries that are 
on that axis are also the countries, of course, that support the Palestinian cause and are being constantly punished. And this is this has been going on for, for a very, very long time. Um, Anya, let me, I'll repeat these, uh, these three questions for you. Um, are we making progress? Are we doing enough? And uh, who are you reaching? Who are we reaching? Or are we reaching people in significant numbers? On your point about whether or not it's a coincidence that the countries which stand the Palestinian cause in the region are the targets of U.S. wars of aggression, I, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. In fact, I think that's one of the primary reasons that Iraq and Syria were targeted. I don't, th I don't think Palestinian liberation will come without a unified, independent Arab existence in the Middle East. And that's really what Syria represented. It was back, it, it, it still represented the days when, when Arab leaders could, could stand together in the face of, of the United States and Israel. And unfortunately, that's, that's changed. But I think it's important to remember that the populations across the region still do uh, really stand with the Palestinian people and are pressuring their leaders, for example, not to go along with this normalization project, this initiative the United States is rolling out. I recently interviewed Ali Abu Nima, the Electronic Intifada, and he was really making that point that since the UAE came out with this normalization plan, other leaders, for example, I believe it was in Morocco, were forced to say that they weren't considering something like this because there was so much outrage among the populations. And so definitely the goal of U.S. policy in the Middle East is to protect the interests of the the of, of imperialism, and and Israel is ex Israel exists to serve as a an extension of that, and that's why any threat to Israel is a threat to the United States. But I do believe we are definitely making progress on the issue. If you're a progressive running in the United States right now, I think you're expected to have a position on Palestine. You're at least supposed to, I think you're expected at this point to question the validity of sending military aid to, to Israel. I just interviewed Shahid Buttar, who's a candidate running against Nancy Pelosi, challenging, challenging the House Speaker in San Francisco. And this was something we talked about. He said he enthusiastically supports withdrawing military aid from not only Israel, but Egypt as well. Egypt is complicit in these crimes and another major recipient of, of U.S. military aid. I know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when she was running for office, really spoke out against the occupation of Palestine and she pivoted afterwards, which was very disappointing to me, but I think that Ilhan Omar, Rashida uh, Tlaib, and others really show that this is a growing force uh, in, in Congress. But I don't really also believe that the liberation of Palestine is going to come from the U.S. leadership or even with the permission of the U.S. Of US leadership. I think what we're looking at right now is a changing region. It takes time for that to, to actually come into existence, but Rania touched on the fact that sanctions and, and U.S. economic terrorism in the region have really had an effect on strangling countries such as Syria 
and Iran, two major allies of, of Palestine. But the flip side of that is that it's also forced them closer to other powers, rising powers in the world, whereas I think the United States is a declining power. We might not see it very clearly right now because it's still so forceful and, and dangerous, but I think that'll change in the next 15 years. We just saw the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, in Syria, along with the deputy prime minister of Russia, meeting with the Syrian president, meeting with his cabinet, and discussing a plan to rebuild the country. And recently it was reported that China and Iran are in talks to come to a really historic economic and military agreement. And when you just think about the map that that lays out, China and Iran working together in the region and, and strengthening the position of Iran in the region, I think that would be a positive for Palestine. I also think that if the U.S. is waning in influence due to its aggressive economic policies and these other countries are able to step in, that, that it'll, be, it'll be positive for Palestine. I know many critics will say that Russia and China are not really forceful in their support for the Palestinian cause. Russia definitely has a special relationship with Israel due to the number of Russian emigres in, in, or immigrants in, in Israel and, and just the historic relationship between those populations. But one area where Russia and China are both really consistent is in their voting along the lines of international law at the United Nations, and, and, and that lines up with support for Palestine uh, in organizations international organizations, especially as I, as I said, uh, I think the United States wanes in influence in the region because of these drastic economic measures. Even members of the U.S. establishment have come out in, I believe it was the Financial Times a year ago or so, the former director of the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is the sanctions office of the Treasury Department, actually wrote that the Trump administration's continuous attacks and real reliance on sanctions and going above and beyond even what Europe would find comfortable when it comes to sanctions is going to have the effect of reducing the power and influence of the United States because we're not going to be able to control the global financial system forever with that kind of, with that kind of terror economic policy and other countries are stepping in to fill the void. So with time, I think that that'll reflect positively for Palestine in the region. So you, you, you just made a few incredibly important points that are rarely heard from, from journalists at all. Do you feel that your, these points that you make are reaching more people? The well, work we're reaching do. 250 people right now on this uh, webinar, yes, but yeah. it's really hard to measure. <laughs> it's hard to measure just for me how many people we're reaching, except that I will say when I've talked about these issues on the gray zone or at RT previously where I worked, these were some of the most popular segments. One of the most popular segments I did, actually the most popular segment I've done in the last two months was an interview with a journalist based in China about the Iran-China military and economic deal because I think people all around the world are 
waiting for this. They're waiting for the challenge to U.S. hegemony to really show its face and, and rise. And it's, it's happening. It takes time, but I do believe it is happening. And it's definitely information that people are hungry for. So I do find that when I, when I talk about these issues, they get a lot of hits, they get a lot of views, and they're really popular. And it's also all the rest of the world is talking about. I can say that based on my experience covering diplomatic meetings. Uh, last year, I was in Venezuela for the ministerial meeting of the non-aligned movement. And so that's 120 countries. It's basically the entire world minus the United States and Europe. And it was just one foreign minister, one diplomat after another, whether it was from Zimbabwe, whether it was from the DPRK, whether it was China, Russia, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, that's uh, Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister was there. That's when he held up his phone and he said, Google terrorism right now and tell us that what the United States is doing with sanctions is not terrorism. This is all the rest of the world talks about. And these leaders are all working on creating this new future, this new financial system. I don't think we have a full aware of, awareness of it here in the United States, but it is it is reality. It's happening. And it's thanks to our economic terror that we're waging on the world. Yeah. And you mentioned Venezuela, and I know you've worked a lot on Venezuela. It's not really our topic, but I will say that probably one of the reasons, I think it's quite obvious, one of the reasons that Venezuela has targeted uh, Bolivia, other other Latin American countries who dare to stand up and challenge the uh, the hegemony of the United States. Um, Nar, uh, I'll ask you the same questions. Uh, is progress being made? Are we doing enough? I mean, and um, uh, and are we reaching people? I mean, are people being reached reached in significant numbers so that this information actually gets to them? Well, I'm not sure there's much more that I can add from what Anya and um, Rania brilliantly both said uh, about the state of, of this issue. Um, but I, I, I would like to emphasize that we are facing major censorship. Uh, we are in the David versus Goliath battle for truth and information today as social media giants uh, recognize the strength of, uh, you know, people posting their stories online. And you mentioned before, you know, uh, you know, right now talking about Palestine has become mainstream and that is thanks to social media. Uh, when the Arab Spring or the Arab Autumn, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> erupted, um, you know, when people were posting these issues on social media, uh, they went viral. And when people in Gaza were getting bombed by Israel, those posts went viral. So there is so much power within, uh, from, there's so much power uh, from social media, that these social media giants are actually working with the state of Israel, like Facebook, like Twitter, um, and Instagram, and all the others. They're working hand-in-hand -hand with the state of Israel to censor um, independent and alternative media voices. Um, Palestine is such a strong uh, narrative on social media. You know, you're going to get all of the images of, you know, for, about Gaza, about uh, the, re the real story of Israel's occupation and apartheid policies and whenever, um, you know, Israeli soldiers shoot and assassinate these young children or kidnap them and torture them, it's all not shown on CNN or the BBC. It's all going viral on social media. And so that's why Netanyahu is meeting with Mark Zuckerberg to ensure that Palestinian voices within Palestine are being censored and flagged. And then also uh, working hand in hand with Facebook 
um, and other social media giants to ensure that the that any sort of news about Israel and Palestine is flagged as anti-Semitic, um, which has happened to Mint Press, by the way. We work with world-renowned cartoonist Carlos Latouf, who does brilliant cartoons for us. And when he illustrated, um, you know, Israeli soldiers sniping Palestinian uh, nurses and um, journalists and photographers at the Gaza border for just doing their job peacefully protesting and just there, um, that cartoon got flagged and taken down by Facebook and Instagram as anti-Semitic because it showed an Israeli soldier sniping. Um, and the same thing when it comes to like other conflicts, like the conflict in Yemen, you know, Facebook is also censoring images of what Saudi Arabia is doing um, in starving the Yemeni population there. And so, yes, the narrative about Palestine and Israel being an apartheid state and a colonizer, ethnically cleansing and committing these human rights abuses has absolutely become mainstream, which is a very proud moment. But the truth is, on the other side, and I don't, I, you know, I'm kind of like Rania, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cynic. On the other side of things, Netanyahu, the Israeli government and the far right and the U.S. military machine and those um, far right think tanks uh, like the Atlantic Council are working nonstop to ensure that what we see in our home, on our home pages and our news feeds, is um, you know fits in with their with their narrative of what they want people to know. Because we know that over 90% of the population gets their news from social media, and so they're working around the clock to ensure that they have full control over our news feeds. And we've seen this at Mint Press, and I'm sure the Grey Zone has experienced this in the Soapbox. I mean, I know Soapbox has actually was like taken down for a couple of months and they filed an entire lawsuit against Facebook for censoring um, them. And, and Ronnie has done excellent reports on Gaza and on Palestine and what Israel is doing there. And Mint Press, before the 2016 election, before uh, the Atlantic Council became a major partner and uh, major partner with Facebook, we used to get over, uh, over 6 million views, unique visitors to our website every single month. I mean, we were like one of the top leading news organizations, independent media organizations competing with like Alternet in the nation. That's how high our readership was, straight from social media. After the 2016 election, after the Atlantic Council uh, was set up, and also after um, Facebook partnered up with, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia and other news flag flaggers like BuzzFeed and um, others. I forgot what their, what their names are at this very moment. After they partnered up, we started to significantly see our numbers get lower and lower and lower and lower. It's like a, it's a battle now. It's like a battle to get our, our news stories, not just posted, but to actually reach the followers that we have. I mean, we have nearly a million followers on Facebook and we're barely able to reach maybe a couple thousand now uh, because of the change of these algorithms. The same thing with Google News. We, were, we used to appear at the very top of Google News. We did everything to make sure that we were fitting into the algorithm or fitting in with the guidelines to be on Google News. And while we are still on Google News, um, you know, now Google News has like, it's prioritizing mainstream corporate media. And so there's a clear fight here. It's a very clear David versus Goliath fight. And I believe that we the people and we as independent journalists as well, um, we do have the power because there's certainly more of us than there are of them. And like Anya suggested um, and explained so well, there's a huge uh, push in the international arena through alignments like BRICS and alternative currencies um, and countries calling for interdependence from colonialism, modern day colonialism, 
um, from U.S. corporations and the, the military arm of, of, of U.S. corporations as well. There's a very big, you know, push against that. And um, I think only time will tell how that will go. But one thing is for certain, Israel is not stopping its occupation. It's only expanding it. And through this deal of the century that we've seen recently, um, although it's being presented again in the mainstream media as a peace plan, it's obviously just another means to expand its colonization of Palestine and land grab. Palestinians are now more segregated from each other than ever before. People in the, the Negev, the, the Bedouins are having their land stolen from them. Gaza is being uh, closed off and starved more than ever. I mean, the UN has predicted that perhaps in the next, I don't even think in the next couple of years it can survive. Um, and people will be able to live there. It would be un, unbearable to live. And then now with this deal of the century, the West Bank is now being basically set up to become the next Gaza. And, you know, Miko, you joined me for the podcast to talk about that issue. And so while there are some definitely positive things about awareness, um, until people can truly unite on a political front and not um, divide, you know, fall for the, all these divide and conquer rhetoric, um, until we can come together and, you know, rise above all of this and, and, and push forward through this mainstream media censorship, then we will see more normalization of Palestine and also recognition. But even then, we have to be careful because the powers that be, even, even though that there are these propositions to recognize Palestine, do we really want the United States to recognize Palestine? Because what they'll do is just come right in and put their own leader in charge of that Palestine. They'll come right in and call it, recolonize it in their own way. So we have to be careful of trusting the current systems um, and structural systems that are in place because they're only going to exploit uh, the cause of Palestine no matter what. Well, without doubt, I, you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And, and uh, you, what you said about, you know, the social media giants actually collaborating with Israel and with the establishment leads me to my next question. And Ronnie, if you have time, I'm, I want to start with you. Um, since, since we know that Facebook, since we know that the big social media giants are, do work together with the establishment, with Israel, who are our allies? I mean, who, uh, who do we work with? Who is helping us to get the word out? Who can we utilize? What individuals, organizations, uh, groups uh, can help us to get the reporting out? All this terrific reporting that you guys are doing, that you're doing. Who who are our allies in getting this out to the public? So, Rania, please. Um, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point about these social media giants. Well, social media has been a huge benefit and tool for alternative media, as Manar mentioned. She also mentions now these. Uh, you know, these social media companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Instagram, they have these algorithms that none of us get to see that are basically being to use to suppress content. They're being advised um, in the, you know, it's so ironic. They're being advised in the name of combating hate online. They're being advised by groups like the Anti-Defamation League, which is basically just a pro-Israel lobby that smears Israel's critics as anti-Semites. Um, as well as groups like the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab. The Atlantic Council, of course, is a think tank that receives funding from like every weapons contractor you can imagine, as well as many Gulf monarchies and uh, the United States State Department, NATO. Um, so they're advising, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook on what constitutes good and bad speech. And so you do see content like ours being suppressed and you do see 
our reach being, be, you know, going down. And I'm not really sure what to do about that. Um, I think this is a conversation that alternative media needs to start discussing more seriously because we're dependent because we're not CNN, right? We're not the New York times. We're not the corporate press. We're dependent on these Silicon Valley companies to get our content out. But these Silicon Valley companies are in bed with the U S government and they're suppressing content at their, and also the Israeli government. We know the Israeli government, has advised Facebook on, you know, what should be taken down and Facebook has heeded their calls. So that's a real problem. And even my outlet right now uh, is suing Facebook because they've put a warning label on our page, which has caused our numbers to go down. Uh, So these are big issues that are also, you know, people who care about Palestine solidarity need to care about this issue because it affects getting the word out. I think there's lots of groups doing really good work on the issue of Palestine, you know, the IMEU, is a really great resource. Um, but that said, like, I think that this might be a good segue to talk about one of the problems with Palestine solidarity at the moment. And it's been an issue for the last few years is that it is split, not necessarily over the issue of Palestine specifically, but there has been a huge divide that people try to ignore, but it exists over other issues in the Middle East. And because of that, the Palestine solidarity movement is not unified. There's been people purged from it, right? Over, mostly over the issue of Syria. Um, the big elephant in the room is I think everybody on this panel, all the wonderful women on this panel have been smeared relentlessly because they have vocally opposed the U.S. regime change war on Syria that has destroyed that country over the past decade. Um, unfortunately, the Palestine Solidarity Movement includes in it people who are pro-regime change in Syria. And those people have won the argument through bullying tactics, through getting people deplatformed. You know, I, a few years back, was disinvited from speaking engagements on the issue of Palestine because I'm a so-called Assadist, because I don't support the U.S. war on Syria. Um, Not really sure till this day what Assadist means, uh, but I guess it just basically means you're against the U.S. war on Syria because that's what I've been smeared as. And as a result, you know, I'm not really welcome so much in the public Palestine solidarity movement like I once was. Um, You've seen the electronic intifada, which was, I recommend, you know, I'm sure everybody who's watching us knows the electronic intifada. I used to work there. It's a very important outlet when it comes to updates and developments and reporting on Palestine, uh, both what's happening on the ground there and what's happening in the solidarity movement in the U.S. And that outlet has, has been the target of smears because of their reporting on Syria, which has been very balanced. But because it's not pro-U.S. regime change, you know, there's some people in the Palestine solidarity movement who, you know, uh, uh, you know, don't like to link to the electronic intifada or don't like it because of Syria. So. The reason I bring this up, I know I'm rambling a bit, is just that this has had a huge impact on the ability to organize around Palestine and to have unity on this issue. And it's been such a divisive uh, problem within the Arab community in the U.S. itself, where people are like hating each other over their views on Syria. Um, And I think this speaks to a larger issue of trying. We know that the the Israelis and their allies in the U.S., have said in their own papers on how to deal with the rising support for BDS that we should use issues as much as we can to divide this movement. And one of the issues they've pointed to is Syria. 
And it's not the only issue, it's other issues across the region. And I'm sure Anya and Minar probably have much to add to that, but I know that kind of veers a little bit off your question, but it, it makes it difficult to tell you what's the best organization to go to, because I do feel like there are so many divisions right now. You know, I remember when the war in Syria began, I was uh, invited to speak at a mosque, I forget where. Um, and just before the event started, it was a huge mosque, you know, hundreds, a lot of people. What, the organizer came up to me and apologized and he said, unfortunately, only half of the people who normally would have come are here because they disagree with him, the, the person who invited me, on his stance on Syria. And that created a huge division in the mosque. And again, I don't remember what city I was in. Um, it was still packed, but, but, you know, the thought, and I thought, I didn't understand, I could, just couldn't understand what he was saying. I mean, I, and that was just the beginning of the war. And I know, and I've seen what you've talked about, how this issue has divided uh, or has become kind of, uh, uh, created a, a, a serious problems. I don't know why Syria is any different than Libya, Yemen, Iraq, um, you know, all the other countries that have been punished and have been destroyed because of their staunch support for the, for the Palestinian issue and their resistance to, um, to American imperialism and, and Zionism. Um, I'm not sure how that, how that quite uh, panned out because if you, we oppose these things, if we oppose the destruction of countries, and again, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, they're all part of the same list of countries as, uh, as well as Syria and, and, um, and for, for further afield is, uh, is Iran. Um, but that, that is certainly, I agree with you, that is certainly a, a, a difficulty. Um, Minara, let me ask you uh, the same questions. Who, which allies do we have, in other words, since, just like you said, the big names, the big people in, in social media are working with the establishment, are working with Israel. They have placed some very difficulties on you and others. Um, who do we work with? Who are, uh, who are our allies? Well, I think it's important that we follow independent media, um, like we've kind of established at this point. Um, organizations like Mint Press or The Gray Zone or The Soapbox. Um, these are organizations that are not just giving us the daily headlines, but they're actually going <laughs> behind the headlines to provide the proper context to uh, connect these issues to, um, you know, lobbyists, special interests, the military industrial complex, and kind of the hidden hands, the puppeteers that are working in the background. Um, to make these issues um, um, possible. And I think it's really important that we stand behind uh, independent candidates as well. Uh, right now, uh, within our two-party system, it's, we, have a, we have a two-party system that doesn't truly represent we the people. It represents the interests of the billionaire class, the lobbyists, and the major corporations that run this country. And so we have to put um, our money behind the candidates that truly represent us. And so we have to really disconnect and break the chains of the two-party system. A lot of people on the left tend to vote Democrat because it's a safer way uh, to go um, to ensure that, you know, we just, anything but Trump or anything but a Republican. But in fact, all that does is that just enables uh, it's like an addiction. We're just enabling our addiction to like this two-party um, uh, corporatocracy that we're living under. And so we have to put um, our money and our support behind third-party candidates like Jill Stein. I remember, I mean, I'm just giving Jill Stein as an example, as a three-party candidate. I remember when I supported Jill Stein, I was like an extremist online. Oh my gosh, how could you not support Bernie Sanders? <laughs> I was being like attacked and targeted from like every angle because 
hey, Bernie Sanders once said that Palestinians deserve human rights. And I was like, oh my God, that's all he said? How about Jill Stein, somebody like Jill Stein, or even a libertarian candidate? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, left or right or whatever, but, you know, even other libertarian candidates that uh, support, um, you know, peace in Palestine and this, you know, disassociating the United States support from, from apartheid. And so I really think that a, a key issue here is being able to support um, alternative and independent candidates. Um, and I know that Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar did run under the Democratic Party, but those are two candidates that are pretty have been pretty radical. I don't agree with everything that Ilhan Omar says or does. I don't agree with even you know Rashida Tlaib, but I think we have to look for candidates that are willing to really challenge the status quo and make people feel uncomfortable. I mean, my God, Rashida Tlaib was like was organizing a delegation to go visit Palestine to go see and witness occupation firsthand and um, and witness the human rights abuses. I mean, when was the last time we even had a candidate even acknowledge that Palestinians um, were living under this kind of crisis? Or Ilhan Omar, who has come out to support BDS. Or, you know, we have to, you know, we do have to support candidates that support, um, or that are willing to kind of challenge the establishment and the status quo and see what happened to them. They were heavily, heavily attacked. And I do believe that Ilhan Omar was attacked even more because she's black, um, because of the color of her skin. Not only is she, you know, Muslim and she wears the hijab, but she's also a black candidate. And so she has just like, she's more attacked than ever. Rashida Tlaib, I feel like is not even recognized or acknowledged, which is really a microcosm of what Palestine and Palestinians uh, have to deal with every single day. We're ignored and we're sidelined constantly within the media. And that's how Rashida Tlaib is treated. Uh, within the media. And then in terms of like censorship, um, you know, I remember going on Anya's show on RT talking about this, like we have to, we have to look for an alternative to these social media giants. And, you know, I'm, I'm at a loss at just how many alternatives have been started. Um, but the problem is, is that ma the mass people are not willing to make that change and jump onto them. Um, people are so addicted to being on Facebook, so addicted to being on Instagram, and like we're probably all victim of this too, right? Um, the problem is like you know we have people like Ben Swan who started a really um, interesting or you know alternative um, social media organization called Isagoria. Um, there's MeWe. There's you know there's others, but the problem is is that most people are not willing to make the move. And so when we say, who do we, who are our allies? Who do we believe in? Who do we look for? I think one of the last things that I want to say is that we have to look within ourselves. I say this a lot in my talks. We think we are so powerless. We think that these social media giants are so giant. Yes, that I, even I said it. it's, a, it's a David and Goliath uh, battle, but really it just takes one person to make positive change and that one positive change can, you know, start a ripple effect and eventually that ripple effect throughout time will cause a wave of action. And so we have to look no further than the strength within ourselves and the courage within ourselves to challenge these systems that be, whether it's through boycotts, through um, uh, talking to other people, um, these talks through organizations, these panels that we're creating and turning to independent media. Every little thing that we do counts. We can't underestimate um, how powerful we are, even just as one individual. If we were not powerful, the powers that be would not be working around the clock to uh, suppress 
our voices. And I think we have to remember that's who they fear. They fear us. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think if anything, if we see the enormous efforts that um, the pro-Israeli groups like the ADL and some of the others are putting in to uh, fight BDS and, 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 and um, discount BDS and call BDS uh, anti-Semitic and all this other nonsense, just shows precisely that this is working. And uh, the fact that every, every candidate has to have an opinion on BDS uh, demonstrates uh, precisely what you said. Um, Sorry, real quick, Miko, before you ask the next question, I just wanted to say bye and thank you to everybody who joined in and thank you for inviting me. I have to run, but Thanks, it was Anya. great thank to hear you so from much. you guys. Thanks bye. for all the Thanks. questions. Bye. Um, and what you said about uh, candidates, there's at least two potential Democrats, uh, Cory Bush and Jamal Bauman, who are also supporters of BDS, who hopefully will get in uh, in the next elections. But uh, this issue of a third party or no third party is a big one. In fact, I'm hosting a panel with four under 30 activists uh, at the end of the month. Uh, two of the, you know, all progressive activists. Uh, two of them think that progressives should vote for Biden and two of them think that they don't. It's a really good mix, a very, you know, diverse uh, panel that we put together um uh to discuss this issue i mean is it better to vote for jill stein or you know whoever it is that's uh that we that we like as a third party candidate or to stick to um to joe biden so that's 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 coming up at the end of the month um anya let me turn back let me turn to you again with the same issue who the allies are who do we work with and um you know who's going to help us who can help us in light of of, of what we've heard already to get the word out on Palestine. And I mean, you've been, you, you, you sat in studios and, and, and hosted shows in studios and you've been on the ground and you've been in all kinds of, every, every, everywhere in between reporting. Who are the allies? Who are the people that we work with? I think the allies are the people in this webinar. Of course, I don't have to say again, but I will, Mint Press, uh, In The Now, Soapbox, and Miko, your podcast and your work, your, you, you write for Mint Press, just following uh, any of the people in this group, I think is, is a great idea. I also really love the Electronic Intifada. I think they put out really consistent work and they're constantly focused on Palestine, working really hard with a great team all over the world. So I, I really appreciate uh, Ali and his team. And beyond that, it's really difficult because well, what you said, Miko, about your experience of half of the people in a mosque not showing up because of Syria for an event about Palestine, I think, is really a small picture of what the entire movement faced over, over recent years. I remember, I believe it was in 2015, there was a huge demonstration during April. APAC in Washington, D.C. I think I walked with you in it. Uh, but then within the next few years, those got smaller and smaller. And I remember one day specifically, there was a, a protester demonstrating against APAC who was waving a Syrian flag. And I watched as he fought with this younger woman who was telling him, like, if you are waving that flag, then you should be with the people inside. And she's getting really aggressive with him. So I just pointed out, I said, if that's the case, then why is Israel bombing that country? I mean, Israel's conducted hundreds of illegal bombing campaigns against the Syrian state. So that doesn't really add up. 
and she turned to me and called me a white expletive and it really just like I was like, why are we fighting about this at a rally for Palestine? We should all be focused on the singular cause here. We don't even have to get into the fact that if you are going to be consistent on Palestine, you should be against U.S. regime change operations in the Middle East. Like, we can even leave that point aside. Let's just not make this about Syria. But that became impossible. And I'm, I'm really upset about that. I think there have been cases of organizations really falling apart over that issue. Uh, but another issue, Miko, is the fact that a lot of the think tanks and foreign policy media outlets in D.C. are funded not even necessarily by the U.S. and Israeli governments, but by the Gulf governments. The UAE is really a powerful force in Washington funding think tanks and institutes all over the city. And look where they are now. They're normalizing relations with Israel. And I think that that makes it harder even at Arab and, and Middle East focused institutes to talk about the Palestine issue. Um, I'm going to be interested to see how that this new era of Gulf and Israeli relations shifts some of the, the institutes that exist in Washington. I see a lot of people commenting also about the social media issue quite a bit. I think the points that Rania and Minar raised about about uh, finding alternative outlets potentially is is important because social media has been a huge tool for all of us. It's just that in recent years, it's it's become uh, we've experienced the same thing at the gray zone that Menar has experienced at Mint Press, which is a, a, a real decrease in some traffic. I, I've sometimes Googled exact headlines that we published at the gray zone. And it's not the first result that will come up in Google because there's a clear algorithm. But then when I'm in foreign countries, sometimes a gray zone comes up. So I, it's like a very tricky algorithm and it's tailored directly or, or controlled directly for people in the United States. I think building alternatives to Google or Facebook and Twitter YouTube, that's going to be really difficult because it's one thing, as Minar said, to get the content out there on those alternative uh, sites, but it's another thing to get the audience and the people that are already so used to Facebook, so used to Twitter to, to make the switch. And so I think part of what we can do is at least change the conversation around these companies. I personally believe that we should all, I mean, not just around Palestine, but on any any issue, but especially this, we should advocate and, and agitate for these companies to actually be publicly traded, publicly owned, publicly controlled institutions because the way it exists right now, Twitter can ban Alex Jones, knock him off the site. A lot of people probably support that because they disagree with him without seeing the slippery slope that that, that initiates for people like us. But you can't really always make a constitutional argument about that, that he has the right to be on there, or that we have the right to be on there because it's a private corporation. I know a lot of other people will say then, but the government is the exact and the very institution that we're challenging on some of these issues. And so we don't want the government's hand in 
in these outlets or owning these outlets. But I think at the very least, then it's easier to make the case that our constitutional rights apply to these outlets if they're owned publicly. And so we can at least uh, stand up for those rights if we're censored or or if we see these algorithms uh, pop up. And and I should I just the reason that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube are so willing to collaborate with institutions such as the Atlantic Council right now and to censor us and to change their algorithms is because they're afraid of that. They don't want to lose their profit models. They, they're really, their, their number one fear is that they would be owned by the people. And that's part of a wider conversation of, of changes in, in our government and structure that I would like to see. But I just think the more we talk about that, uh, the more it, it helps our, our cause. And that's the real alternative that I see because so far I haven't seen a viable alternative platform to these major social media outlets rise. I think we just need to take control of them. Brilliant. Um, okay, I think we can open up for some Q&A. Uh, Jamil, you want to uh, get that going? Yeah, absolutely. Got a lot of questions here. So um, this, this first one is from Rashid. Um, this was sent to us via email. The question is, how can we leverage the alternative media to break down the high level of fragmentation and unite both the US Palestinian community and their supporters in the, solitary, in the solidarity movement for Palestinian human and national rights? Uh, who wants to go first? talk about it a little bit. Um, if I understood his question correctly, is how can we break free from the establishment and kind of bring more people within our movement? Yeah. And then, yeah. Okay. And then uh, he's also asking about it in the, in the, in, in the concept of leveraging alternative or independent media, like, like the one you represent, you know, what's, what's the role of independent media in that, if there is one at all? Sure. So I, I, you know, the reason why I wanted to answer this question is because I want to talk about my experience a little bit. I think a lot of times we tend to talk to each other too much. <laughs> you know, we have, we have um, very passionate people who, you know, care about human rights, who care about humanity. We want to bring peace into this world and we're so outraged about these issues. And we're just so confused why there's people on the other side who just don't care enough. But what happens is when we talk and we organize, we end up talking to each other and it becomes kind of like an echo chamber. And so what I've done um, in my own community is I make myself extremely uncomfortable and I get into spaces with people like white supremacists. Yes, I do that. As a hijabi Muslim Palestinian woman, I go and I talk to these people and I go to them with so much love and um, positive energy. Um, just kind of trying to connect with them on a level, on a human level, human-based level. Um, and I just want to talk about one experience that I had that's so significant, that really is part of the reason why I do the work that I do today, because I saw a huge shift in so many people's uh, consciousness. And it, you know, just watching people have these paradigm shifts um, motivates me every single day and gives me hope for humanity. People on the far right live with a lot of fear. <laughs> okay, we have to recognize that they're also being, uh, they're also consuming media that is pouring so much fear into their hearts and their minds um, that they are just fearful of the other. 
Um, one of the first jobs that I had um, as a journalist was in the small city of St. Cloud, Minnesota, where um, it was a Michelle Bachman district. Maybe some of you don't remember Michelle Bachman, but I definitely do. She represented Minnesota, very far right figure, kind of like a mini Donald Trump um, in our state. And I actually, my first news job was a local reporter um, in one of that in one of her cities. And a lot of people there, and I had just started wearing hijab for the first time. A lot of the people there had never met a Muslim before, and they thought that pretty much all Muslims were terrorists. And so when I went there with, as a backpack journalist with my camera, with my gear, and I had my hijab on, I was like, you know, I was 21, 22 years old. Um, I would go meet these people, and they were legitimately afraid of me. They were so afraid to talk to me. And I would just smile and be like, hey, how are you? How's it going? And I would just chit chat. And I would get to know them on a personal level. And at first, they were like, didn't know how to react to that, um, to me talking to them that way. Um, but uh, eventually, I would get them to open up. And then they would tell me straight up, you know, when I first met you, I thought I couldn't trust you. I had never met a Muslim before. I, I was shocked that you could speak English. And, and thank you for dressing so American. That's what they would tell me. And they would open up to me and tell me that, you know, that they, you know, thought that people like me had bombs under their hijabs. I had a woman tell me um, in one of my interviews, you know, I don't trust Somali women because they're wearing the gowns and I feel like they have weapons under their gowns. And so I would talk to them and educate them, but I would connect them on a personal level. Until this day, I have kept contact with these people who were once white supremacists, hateful people who I completely changed around. And so to bring back to that question, the reason I bring that story up a lot is because it was through acts of kindness and putting my ego to the side and actually getting myself into a very, very, very difficult situation, situation that might have even risked my life. I mean, I met people with swastikas that I ended up changing. So we have to remember that we got to stop just talking to each other. You and I know that Palestinians deserve human rights. But through my experiences talking to people on the outside, and getting in those uncomfortable situations. And yes, sometimes I, they would argue and they'd be angry, you know, letting them say whatever they need to say, but then allowing that conversation to become more personal. Those people changed because you could find a common ground. And so those people that I talked to ended up now being pro-Palestine because of those experiences, because of knowing uh, the plight of the Palestinian suffering because of my connection with them. And so we always have to remember that at the end of the day, we're all human. All of these people around the world are human, but so many of us are living in fear. And it's because of the mainstream corporate media instilling this fear, whether it's the Alex Jones or the Fox News, or even uh, the most, some of the most corrupt so-called liberal media, which is CNN, which is the most manipulative out of all the media. They're all instilling fear into the hearts and minds of people. And so we just have to remember that and try to kind of break, break free of this divide and conquer and try to connect with people on a deeper level. And you would be so surprised at how much people will come and engage with you when you do that. Yeah. I know you want to comment on that or should we move on? I think Minar summed it up if we want to fit in as many questions as possible. Yeah. Also, I think it kind of touched on themes that I may have commented on earlier. So go ahead. Okay. So this next question is from Ronald. The question is, do the panelists see any impact of the Black Lives Matter movement 
on how the media views the experience in Palestine, especially since the tactics of the police in the U.S. and the tactics of the IDF are very similar. I can comment on that. Yeah, go ahead. I don't necessarily think I've seen it reflected in the mainstream corporate establishment media, just because, as I said earlier, I don't expect it really to to trickle up in that way because of the, the structure that exists and the fact that, as we've already said, discussing the crimes of Israel is not really a priority for networks, even such as CNN, that might now be more sympathetic to the to the movement in the streets. However, there definitely has been more of a breakthrough with the public over the last several months, especially after the murder of George Floyd, when it was revealed members of the police department where, where, which killed him had actually been trained by Israel as many police departments around the country have, have, have done. And, and just, I'll speak from my own personal experience a few weeks ago, or actually just this weekend, um, I went to a protest in my neighborhood here in Washington, DC after police murdered uh, a young man, Dion Kay, very, terrible situation um, where he was basically, he was really stalked on social media. There wasn't even necessarily a 911 call reporting that he had a gun, which I hate to say is actually typical for, for this part of town. Most of the young men carry guns, not to threaten police, but they see it as a way of protecting themselves. And they found that they really didn't like this kid, according to his family. And they saw that he was posting about having a gun on social media and they chased him down, shot him after he actually threw his gun to the side because he must have been really terrified and knowing that the the cops were going to shoot when they saw that. But during this rally for him in in Washington, D.C., people were talking about Palestine. They were mentioning that the U.S. support for Israel and the militarization of the the of Palestinian communities is reflected back here and that we know police officers here are trained by Israel. A lot of the tactics that they use on the Palestinian population are tested and then brought home here. And I think I saw a lot of uh, comments on social media after the murder of George Floyd about the fact that the tactic of putting the knee on the neck is a very common tactic in Israel. I saw just last week that uh, an Israeli soldier made that exact move on an older Palestinian gentleman who was who was demonstrating. So I think that, at least in, in my circle on online, and in the streets that I have experienced so far, I, I think that relationship has broken through uh, as we've seen the re- revival of the Black Lives Matter movement in recent months. Yeah, Nard, you want to add or should we? I think we can move on. Anya answered it very well. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Go ahead. Okay, we can just do that one question each and then we sure. can get all the questions. Yeah. And then we get more. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is from Steve. Um, I'm going to rephrase the question a little bit. Basically, how are honest and independent news outlets such as yours funded? Um, and then the second part is talking about what are, what are some of the challenges to 
uh, fundraising and staying afloat and paying your paying your staff and all of that just sort of in the context of like the greater mainstream news sort of dominance Manal, why don't you go ahead sure um so I mean, I can speak for Mint Press and other some some other independent media organizations, but usually there is you know a couple uh, major funders, but for the most part, usually about fifty percent um, of our funding and other organizations are funded through our readers. And this is a huge. Uh, this is something that makes us different than these corporate media outlets that are funded by special interest groups or lobbyists or you know billionaires. Um, or that are, you know, you know, privately funded in some way. Um, and so this obviously gives us an advantage and a disadvantage. <laughs> the advantage is that we are more people-powered. Um, independent media outlets are, you know, going to be uh, more influenced and pushed by uh, our readers, um, the people that are going to be funding us. And then um, this gives us more independence in what we're going to cover. So we're more willing to listen to our readers and what they want to cover. And then our journalists, like I can speak for Mint Press, we give our journalists full 100% control over what they cover. They pitch stories and I am, I'm actually the one who works with all the writers, um, except for the op-ed writers. I work with all of the writers to uh, coordinate the topics and what we're going to cover, how we're going to cover it. But it's, like I'm basically just a coach <laughs> to, to the writers that work at Mint Press. You know, they are so incredible, all, all the contributors that we have. Uh, they're so smart, they're so intelligent. I mean, I'm like nothing compared to all of them. I, was look, I look up to all of our writers um, because they do such an extraordinary job. Um, and I'm just there to coach them on which stories to cover and how to cover it, where to cover, whatever, and who to contact for interviews. And then they do the rest of the work and the editing is very minimal. Um, you know, we just edit for structure. And this obviously gives us an advantage because we're seeking out independent sources and then you can also trust that the writers are doing all of the work and they don't have an editor like in most newsrooms at a corporate level. Uh, the editors are usually breathing down uh, the writers and journalists backs on what to cover. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, when I worked at, I worked at an NBC station, uh, CARE 11 here in Minneapolis, and also the local station that I mentioned in the Michelle Bachman district, the editors there assign the writers the story, and so the writers are not as passionate about the topics that they're covering. Sure, they might have a beat assigned to them, but a lot of times um, it's what the editor wants, whereas independent media organizations like Mint Press, and I'm sure it's very similar at the gray zone, it's really what the writers want to cover, and so there's more passion and drive uh, within these stories, and there's more integrity um, in the things that they're they're covering. Um, and then, the, what was the second part of the question? There was one more. I forgot what the, the second this, part. The, was. the second part was about the challenges, um, you know, sort of the financial challenges of running uh, an independent. Oh yes, yes. Uh, so, like when we're covering, um, you know. Palestine or Syria or Yemen even, you know, we don't have the billions of dollars worth or millions of dollars worth of funding uh, that corporate media outlets do. We don't have a team of 10 people to produce like a five minute documentary. We have like two people <laughs> to produce these documentaries that we're producing. Um, when I was covering, uh, I spent two years solely covering the crisis, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. It was literally just me and this producer in Yemen. I was writing the scripts, I was going over the footage, doing everything. It was so overwhelming and so much work, but it was so worth it. 
Um, but, you know, I got to interview the families and talk to them while he was getting all the footage for me. And so we're, we're definitely working on a smaller budget. We're stretched much more thin um, than a major corporate media outlet where they would have multiple people um, working on the story. But again, it gives us an advantage because we know that we're getting more honest stories, uh, whereas, you know, in a corporate media setting, which I witnessed firsthand when I worked in a corporate media outlet, uh, where you have advertisers influencing, um, marketing strategies influencing um, the the stories, um, you know the top you know media director influencing the stories, and then your editor influencing the stories. Whereas we are more people powered um, through our mission. Out of fairness, just so Menard is not the only one who has to comment on this, I'll just jump in and say the same thing. We're funded by our supporters, by our viewers. There are, we're very fortunate that there are a few individuals who have more yeah. means and a capacity to support us. And so that's what makes us or enables us to work on a, on a higher level. But basically at the gray zone, we're just a small team of myself, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Monte and Ben Norton. We have a small budget for freelancers or contributors here and there as well, but I, I, we're not making you know the salary. I'm not making the salary I used to make when working at a network, but I, I found, or we found that similarly to Menar, money isn't really an issue for the people who care about the issues that we're working on. And so just being able to cover expenses and giving people money for their, for their work, uh, is enough to motivate people to go out and, and do the work that we do. And it's, it's definitely enough uh, for myself and, and for our team. And it's, it's, it's definitely, yeah, difficult. We don't have the resources to cover everything that we'd like to, but I think that we're still very fortunate that we've been able to do what we have. You know, and it also allows us, I know, Ani, you probably agree, to specialize more in certain topics. You've, you've done like such an incredible job covering Latin America. You know, and then Mint Press, we covered, you know, we were able to cover Yemen. Like, there's a right. major media blackout on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. But because we just put all of our resources into this one topic, yeah. we were able to provide good coverage on it. Same thing with probably what you guys are doing. Yeah, and then there's always accusations that were funded by the government that we cover, <laughs> which at the gray zone, we have a policy of not accepting state money, but also, I mean, Sorry, Venezuela is under such heavy sanctions. They unfortunately struggle to pay their government officials in the United States. So I don't think they could pay me even if they wanted to. All right, next. Okay, this next one is anonymous. The question is, have either of your media outlets been directly targeted by Israeli state Hasbara? Um, and what is, how do you know whether um, attacks, critiques, uh, smears are coming from the Israeli state versus, uh, you know, pro-Israel groups here in the U.S. I think we've both been targeted on you, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's hard to know, but definitely the trolls online. I think especially for us, it's actually been Syria trolls in the case of the gray zone, just because it was so controversial when uh, certain certain members of our outlet took the positions they did, but I, I think those operations are closely allied. Uh, but yeah, as you said, 
in the lead up to this panel, you were getting a lot of feedback from trolls who didn't like us online. And it's mostly in our case, Twitter, but then the, the more structural level of that is what we've already discussed, which is the censorship and the algorithm on Facebook when we know that US government institutions such as the Atlantic Council or uh, Zionist, pro-Zionist organizations such as the ADL are counseling Facebook on how to censor or who to censor. I think that's that's a clear example of how we've been targeted too. Um, I don't remember the name of the lobby group. Um, this was a couple of years ago, but we were actually targeted by a very specific Israeli lobby group on our Wikipedia page. Um, and they were caught editing our Wikipedia page. And we actually caught them and we did this big expo. And for some reason, it's like at the tip of my tongue, but I cannot remember the name, but it wasn't, it was an actual Israeli lobby group. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned Syria because they were editing all of our Syria content. Um, all of anything that was mentioned about Syria on our Wikipedia page, they were editing that. Um, in addition to um, our Syria coverage, you know, like, like Anya and Rania both explained, we were simply covering the U.S. role in arming and funding of these extremist rebels because there's kind of like this really basic rule, think about it, if the United States is arming right-wing people, sending them millions of dollars and massive amounts of weaponry, it's not a revolution anymore. Maybe it might have started out that way, maybe there was a movement, but typically that means that it has now been overrun by probably the United States, and so that's what we were bringing attention to. And at that time, I was targeted in a character assassination by a reporter for BuzzFeed who actually targeted Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone as well, Rosie Gray, who later I found out had very close ties to the State Department. And I, I don't remember what think tank it was. It might have been, I don't think it was the Atlantic Council um, Center for something. Do you remember, Anya? Like the revived PNAC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. PNAC. Yes. Yes. And all them were. Yeah, so she was working for this pro-Israel, neoconservative or neoliberal, the two, you know, two same thing, um, but that kind of uh, think tank, and she targeted me in a character assassination, um, you know, saying that, you know, Mint Press was receiving dark money from the state of Iran and Syria, and that my family was like this, like, you know, tied to Khamenei or whatever, I don't even remember what the article said, but basically it was like this Islamophobic, um, anti-Iran, anti-Syria article. And, you know, a lot of times I, I think when I get attacked in these ways, like, okay, well, this article doesn't matter. But in fact, because it was BuzzFeed, which at the time was one of the top 10 websites um, in the world, it actually, a lot of, some of my colleagues actually sent it to me and said they could no longer work with me uh, because of that. Some of my friends from Occupy. And it was like this, uh, you know, whenever, uh, whenever a character assassination happens like that, the goal is always to censor you, to suppress you, to silence you, to isolate you. And that's what they tried to do. But in fact, while it might have appeared at the time that it was like a really bad situation, it was probably one of the best things that could have happened because it allowed me and Mitt Press to rise above that and actually become a leader in, our, in the coverage um, in the war in Syria. Um, and so a lot of times these pro-Israel groups target us because they're afraid of us. They're afraid of the coverage and in that, smear campaign, it wasn't even about our Syria coverage. It turned into just a character assassination about me and my family and my brother and my mom and who I'm related to. It's like typical stuff that they do like against Julian Assange or, or Edward Snowden. Um, but the goal, of course, is to silence and suppress.
All right. Um, since you mentioned Julian Assange, we have a question in, in, in that lane. Um, do the panelists, oh, sorry, this question is from Anne. Do the panelists think that if Julian Assange is extradited to the US for exposing war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan, that this will give rise to an increase in censorship of news about Palestinian resistance and Palestinian solidarity? Absolutely. I think the trial of Julian Assange is a trial on the very idea of a free press. It shows if he's extradited, which unfortunately, following the news and the updates from the courtroom that I have so far, and knowing what I know about this judge, Vanessa Barrister, I believe uh, groups were able to reveal that she's approved about 98% of the extradition cases that have come before her. I'm really depressed and fearful that Assange will likely be extradited to the United States, probably even by the end of this year. And it will be an insurmountable blow to the work that all of us do the Palestinian cause is directly aligned with the anti-imperialist cause. That's what Julian Assange fought for. And he exposed the crimes of empire with his work. And that's why he was a threat. That's why they're working to make an example out of him. And it will be a dark day for anybody concerned with justice and human rights if this extradition goes through. I hope that we'll see some sort of massive movement arise to oppose oppose this just really terrifying prospect, but I, I'm, I feel like I've given a very hopeful message for most of this panel, but this is one area where I'm definitely really cynical. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. I think uh, the way Julian Assange was treated was just horrifying and and I agree with Anya, if he's extradited, um, I mean, you know, one side of me hopes that if he is extradited, there will be some kind of an uprising, a journalistic uprising, particularly among, you know, the, the you know, progressive, you know, media people, you know, like we have in this panel and others, some kind of an uprising that, that, that will, you know, step up and, and, and stand up against this. But the way he's been treated, the whole story of Julian Assange, uh, his arrest is uh, the fact that he had to hide in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy for all these years uh, is horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And the fact that so there's so little, so few journalists are actually standing up uh, for him is just beyond tragic. It's beyond belief. So, uh, I mean, I agree with Anya. I think it's very likely that he will be extradited. You know, and there's some great people. I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, John Pilger and... and, and um, and Roger Waters and other, you know, big names that are standing up uh, in support of him. But it definitely looks like he will be extradited. I, I'm just trying to imagine the horror of the flight, you know, in shackles and, and just the way he was dragged out of the embassy. I mean, <laughs> nobody, nobody in this country has the right or in the UK to talk about any country treating journalists poorly um, after what they've done to him. And again, if he's, the ex if, if he's, if he's sent to the U.S., Again, my hope is that there will be some kind of an uprising among journalists. Otherwise, otherwise, all journalism has been, you know, is like surrendered to, to, to the empire. It's really horrifying. Well, and even before this, what happened to Julian Assange under the National Defense Authorization Act, I mean, the United States government basically gave themselves permission to detain any citizen around the world 
um, if they, you know, for whatever reason they want. And that included journalists. And that's a very, very scary thing uh, because, you know, I, I could be or Anya could be or you could be interviewing somebody for a story that maybe could have a relative who's related to somebody who works in Hamas yeah. or is part of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, even though our government is actively funding those groups, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, you know, covertly, we, the journalists, would still get arrested and detained and maybe even disappeared uh, for, for many months and nobody would even know about it. It's stuff that, you know, Israel does. <laughs> yeah, it was a great question. Thank you to the listener who, uh, who brought up uh, Julian Assange. Um, I'm very glad. Thank you for that. So we're, so we're pretty much past the 90 minutes mark. I don't know if, if you all want to do one more, if you want to call it now, because there's there's 30 more qu unanswered questions here. Let's do one more. Let's do one more and wrap it up because it is getting late. Okay. Um, this one is from Deanna. And the question is, what are the requirements for independent journalists to write for your individual publications in terms of experience, resume, and education? I don't know if this person's fishing for a job, but... <laughs> Maybe they're just trying to gain an understanding about how you how you select, um, you know, who reports for your for your individual outlets. Good. Why don't you, Manal? Why don't you go ahead and then Anya? Yeah, sure. I hire people all the time. Let's let's discuss uh, resumes right now. <laughs> um, so I've actually hired people with all different ranges of experience, and what I have learned the most is that sometimes, it, for especially for staff writers, it actually doesn't matter how much experience you have. I've actually hired some of the best, most passionate writers who have literally had zero experience in journalism, but their passion was so strong. Their drive was so strong and they knew the issues inside and out. And they just needed somebody like a coach, which is what I do. I coach a lot of writers, um, a coach to help them structure their articles, teach them how to put the articles together, venture out for interviews and how to conduct those interviews. So there is definitely hope um, you know, within, within Mint Press to do that. We're not hiring right now because, you know, we are working with, um, we do have staff writers right now. But then we also have hired people with many years of experience, literally veteran journalists who have been working 10, 15, 20 years um, who contribute to Mint Press. And so, but, but the, the common theme, and I'm sure Anya agrees with this with, with the gray zone, is really that passion and drive. You have to care about the issues that we cover. You have to care about human rights, social justice, and acting as a watchdog and upholding our First Amendment rights. If you have that passion and drive, you can succeed as an independent journalist. Unfortunately, if you have that drive, you're not going to do so well within mainstream media outlets because the mainstream media outlets don't want journalists like that. They actually get rid of those kinds of journalists. They don't want opinionated uh, journalists that care too much about those issues. And I hate to say that because I was one of those people. Um, that's just speaking from my own experience, of course. And I've actually met a lot of other journalists who have the passion and drive who end up working in corporate media outlets, but they actually end up hating their job because they're put on some beat that they don't even care about, don't even, they don't even, um, that doesn't even matter to them, and they end up writing stuff that their editor wants them to write about so that this website can get like clicks. And so um, as long as you have the passion and drive, um, and then you also are um, politically savvy in international relations and political science, I think those are really, really important. Something that our journalism schools do not prepare people for, and maybe Anya had a different experience in this, but I went to one of the top um, broadcasting schools in the country, which is actually based in Minnesota. 
um, and it's a broadcasting journalism uh, school. And they taught you, they just, they do a really great job in teaching you how to gather information and tell a story, but they don't actually give you the background and experience and education in political science and how government works and also in international relations. So those are two really key topics or I guess background that I, I really think that journalists should have more um, education in which is political science and in international relations. Yeah, picking up on that, I don't think any of the four of us at the Gray Zone actually studied journalism or went to journalism school at all. I personally dropped out of studying to be a diplomat, studying international affairs, which I do think gave me a good foundation for journalism. Max studied U.S. history. History, I think, is another example of uh, the kind of thing you can study that gives you a good foundation for for doing reporting but my point is it's not necessary to have technical training to be a journalist in fact i think what minar said is is very true that in some ways journalism schools don't emphasize having the the information or the background that uh people like minar might have had naturally uh because a lot of what they want to teach you and maybe minar can, can relate to this based on my experience seeing other uh, people come up through journalism school is to be objective and show both sides, which if you, for example, are covering Palestine, then you're gonna end up drowning out the truth, which is, which is that it's not an equal both sides situation. But that's how I think you're trained to, talk, to think if you're, a, if you're trained at J school. But my point is that you shouldn't be afraid to pursue journalism just because you don't have a degree or even if you don't have a degree in anything related to it whatsoever as Minar said the most important thing is that you have the knowledge and the background the interest in in the topics that you're covering and that you're dedicated and know that it's not necessarily always going to be easy but i encourage anyone who is looking at what we do and wants to do something similar to pick up their phone and go to local demonstrations or uh, try and connect with people they want to interview, put out content because the way I see it, the establishment, the corporate media and the US government, certainly the Israeli government sees that we are in an information war. And so the more soldiers we have on our side, the better. Well, I think talent, dedication, and uh, passion is exactly what you two and, and Rania, who was with us earlier, represent. Uh, I would add to that a great deal of courage. The stuff that you've, I've seen, I've seen you guys work, and I've been following you, and I've known you for a long time, and uh, you're courageous, and, uh, and uh, well, you're fearless, and I think that's why you're able to do the stuff that you do, and I think we're all grateful uh, for that. So thank you for joining us and being so generous with your time, Manar and Anya and Rania who had to leave early. And thank everybody who's been listening and commenting and asking questions. And Michael behind the scenes and Jamil, this has been fantastic. I, uh, I really learned a lot. I really enjoyed your company. And again, I appreciate your time, your expertise and your tremendous work. Um, and like thank I said, at the end of the month, we're, huh? Thank you so much, Miko. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> No, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, yeah. I was going to say, like I said earlier, at the end of the month, we're going to have a panel with under 20-year-old, 420-year-old activists, progressive activists to discuss the election. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see everybody. We'll see everybody there.
But again, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Ani. You did amazing. Yeah, thanks to you, Manar, for participating, and Miko, again, Miko, Jamil, and Michael for arranging this and dealing with all the technical side. I really appreciate it, and it was fun. Thank all you, right, guys. take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.